new people who will be committed to teaching Sunday school, a next generation coming up. It's exciting. But now if I turn and look at you again through the eyes of a divorce lawyer, it'll be a little different. The divorce lawyer is going to look at you and say, 45.8% of you are going to have a divorce. And that's money for me because you're going to fight until all your assets are consumed and I'm going to enjoy a nice mansion feeding off of your divorce. Quite a hard thing. And he'll look at the rest of you that aren't divorced and said, you'll grow old and you'll continue to live together, but you'll hate each other. And that's so much of what the world is seeing and facing. And how do we respond to this as Christians? Some of the statistics out there show that regular church goers have much happier families and they're much, much less prone to divorce. But still it's high and the statistics are all suspect as they do it because of their definition of who's a Christian and who's not may run from 20% to 35% end up in divorce. And that still means we're going to be facing people we love and care about who are really suffering as couples. What do we do about that? How do we, how do we respond to that as Christians? What do we think of that? And the passage that I'm going to be giving today, this last week as I was poking around, I saw a blog and somebody was quoting a person who was torn to pieces over this passage because Jesus said, it's always wrong to divorce. And yet his family situation, his mother and father were fighting. And he said his father was extremely violent, threatening the, with killing them all. And they were getting restraining orders. And the mother was just convinced the only way out was a divorce. And the son just having been to church and wrestling with this idea that divorce is always wrong. And yet, what about this situation? How do we deal with it? And so his faith was shaken in the process. And so I think we need to look at the passage and give it some consideration to what the words of our Lord and Savior are saying. And a few other little lead-ins before I get into this. As I think back to my first hearing of the word divorce, it was a long time ago. There was a country music song. It was a hit in 1968 called D-I-V-O-R-C-E. They spelled it out. And the lady was singing it, Tammy Wynette, singing it because, according to the song, they were pondering a divorce, but they had a four-year-old son, and they didn't want the son to understand what they were talking about. So all these words, they would just spell out. And so if you type that in on Google, you can find this song. I thought about having the worship team lead us in this, but... It, <laughs> That, nah, it's probably not a good idea. Anyway, this has been going on for quite a while, <laughs> this issue of family breakdown. As I work, of course I've been blessed, and I should give credit to the Lord. I thank the Lord that I've made it through 30 years of marriage and have a happy marriage. <laughs> that is possible. And I'll just say that it's by God's grace that it happened. And I thank Him for that. But in my work, I've traveled around the world, been put in different situations. One of my jobs over in Europe, the host was very generous to me. He invited me to his house several times and treated me. His wife cooked a wonderful dinner. But while I was there, the wife was just nag, 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 nag. And so a year later, I got an email from him said, I divorce. I wasn't too surprised. At that time I was in Japan. And in Japan, we lived in this flat, lots of different people in there. One of our neighbors was this wonderful, beautiful young lady. We'd see her on the street and she would just bow and give us the most um, gentle and pleasant and formal outlook that you could ever imagine. But then, they happened to live next door to us and the walls were pretty thin. So 
to every night when she got back to the house, there would be screaming and yelling and screaming and yelling and screaming and yelling until she finally went to sleep. And so, even though externally it seemed everything was just beautiful, everything was perfect, in fact, inside the walls, it wasn't that way at all. Of course, that's Japan, so just in case any of you, I know Chinese guys like to talk about which Asian girl is the most one row or gentle or anyway, just leave you with that little tidbit. The next observation I have for you is just from some of the, the new Chinese banks that are in here. My wife, when put in a deposit, certificate of deposit, depositing some money, and as she was filling out the paperwork, another lady was there helping her with it. She said, put my husband's name on the paperwork in case something happens to me, he can access it. And the lady looked at her with a strange look and said, none of the ladies do this. They all say, don't let my husband know that this money is deposited here. <laughs> this is the way things go in the Chinese community, since it's a Chinese bank, I guess. And then in mainland China, there's a popular soap opera that was going over the last year. They were having a couple, and one of the main scenes in this soap opera was a divorce ceremony. And they go all through these formalities and did the entire marriage ceremony in reverse. And at the end of it, the person who's officiating pronounces them friends again, which never quite seems to work. So, anyway, divorce is an international thing, and it's also something that occurs in time. It's just universal. And so as we think about this, um, well, just something to, to ponder, that you're not alone. <laughs> as you have to deal with this if you're struggling. The Bible, of course, has many dysfunctional families and I think the one we talked about last week was a typical example of Judah and Tamar. Of course, there's many more and if you look in the Matthew chapter 1 and I encourage you to, to get your Bibles out there If you don't have a Bible, get one, because we're going to be reading from it. And so open it up. Matthew 1 is on, what page is that? 659. And I'll give you a moment to get there. Of course, Abraham famously had the issues with Hagar and Sarah as part of his family set up. So he had his troubles there before Isaac was born. And it mentions that. In verse 3, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. This is the genealogy of Jesus. And so the story we had last week of Tamar is there. It goes down a little more. Verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Rahab, of course, was a prostitute. And again, we're Matthew chapter 1. But somehow, God manages to take that background she has and uses that for his purposes. The next one there, Boaz, father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And we all love the story of Ruth. It's quite a beautiful story. But Ruth was from Moab. And Moabites also had quite a, how you call it, a complicated start as they descended from Lot and his daughters. And one more dysfunctional family. It goes down some more. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And we know the story there of David and Bathsheba and how in the end David ended up having 
Bathsheba's husband killed. And it's quite a horrible story. And yet somehow God is able to, to bring about something good through all this. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Solomon, of course, has his issues too. Uh, one more dysfunctional family. And it just keeps going and going and going. He said, why all this in here? But just to keep in mind that Christ is no stranger to the notion of dysfunction in families. But we'll go back now a few pages. All right. Back to Jeremiah. This image of family dysfunction is something that goes all through the Bible. There's examples of it, specific examples, but it's also used as in the prophets heavily. It's an Im image that's repeated over and over again. So if I pick, say, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree there and has committed adultery there. Verse 14. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart and will lead you with knowledge and understanding. And so the various prophets take this image of the dysfunctional family and they use it to the church, to us, as a faithless people. And so as we look at the hurt that we experience sometimes, it's good to reflect on the hurt that God sees the hurt that sin causes as he looks at humanity, as he looks at us. Hosea takes us to even more of an extreme. And it starts out in Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. This is on page 613 if anyone needs to. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he goes and he marries this unfaithful wife. A dysfunctional family, almost at the command of the Lord, so that he can experience the pain. And from the pain that he experiences, he goes and he proclaims the hurt that God has experienced from the faithlessness of his people. And so it continues on with the prophecy. But then in chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way toward you. And so he brings her back. And it's a picture of God's redemption again of, of the church, of the people of Israel. And so all this pain, which just seems inescapable, is God's using it here just to call us into, to thinking of Him, to think of His faithfulness, to think of the faithfulness of Christ as our Savior. As we proceed, well... I shouldn't leave the prophecies at that point because most of them end on a positive note, a note to the future when everything will be brought to reconciliation. And it's talked about this many times. And so the Messiah that the people of Israel were looking for was to bring about, in some sense, this reconciliation. And so Jesus, as he goes about his ministry on many different cases, he's referring to himself as the bridegroom. And so this image, again, he's using for himself, again, for himself and the church. And it's something that is, how do I put it? If I'm frustrated, it's something to bring into mind 
you know, if, if you're feeling like you're ever wanting to just throw in the towel and say, I can't take it, think about Christ. Would Jesus throw in the towel for me? You just say, you're not worth it. I, this relationship's just too hard. Let's give up on it. Let's have a divorce. And with that as uh, the starting point, I want us to go now to Matthew 19, verse 1. Actually, before I go a little further, I'm going to give you the points that I have up front before we even read this because I want you to maybe look where these points might occur in this particular passage as we go through it. The first one is just that as we look at the Old Testament, the different things that are happening there all point to the new. They point to what Christ is going to do. And all these strange stories and you're wondering why why is it important to read them? Why is it important to study them? And they're all pointing in certain ways to the new. And it's because of these stories and the way they're handled and the fact that they're so much part of real life that it's able to bring the importance of the points of the New Testament to us in a, different, in a way that's really real. The New Testament explains the old. And as people start trying to figure out what it is that Old Testament is talking about, one of the best ways to do it is look to the new and see how it's used. And so as we consider this Bible reading program, why is it important that you know the Scriptures? Why is it important you read from cover to cover? And it's because only by reading from cover to cover can you really grasp all these things in their full context. And that's why we encourage you to do this reading the Bible through in the year. So I hope, even if you haven't started it now, to go ahead and start it. Don't set it aside that it's truly something that's going to be of benefit to you. Marriages are put together by God. We'll see this talk here. It's something alien to us. I mean, I thought my wife chose me, or, well, she thought I chose her, or whatever it is. But God is really the one who's putting it together. As we look at this, most of the marriages that are put together in the Bible times, and in fact in most of the world today, or a lot of the world today, they're arranged marriages. And uh, the arranged marriages have, in many ways, a big advantage. As I was checking the statistics for this talk, I found that, like I said, 45.8% of American marriages end in divorce. 59% of Swedish marriages end in divorce. That's the highest in the world. One of the lowest is India, 1%. And they do almost all their marriages arranged. So just throw that out um, for you as a tidbit. Not that I want to make a conclusion from it, just for your info. And then the other thing that I was just getting at with my little tour here, and we'll finish up, with another passage on that point is that marriage is a symbol used throughout the Bible of Christ and the church of what Jesus is doing and again that will be important and I really as I do this what I've seen in, in looking at families is that there are so many different ways that couples manage to arrange their affairs so that they are able to work together and I'm not going to say one is better than the other because different personalities result in different arrangements. And you can't say there's just one that's right for everyone. In the same way, divorces come in all different kinds. And so I'm going to try not to leave you with too many rules and instructions that you must do it this way or you must do it that way. And Okay, so let's consider now this this passage and I want us to read it all together all together at the same time Matthew 19 and it will be verses 1 through 15 and we'll try to to see if there's some continuity in this even though it looks like they're just disjoint things when Jesus had finished saying these things he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan large crowds followed him and he healed them there. 
some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others have been made eunuchs and others were pronounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. passage before this is talking about forgiveness. An unmerciful servant who refuses to pardon others. So a little bit of a, a thought here. Do they go together? Well, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And so that's the first thing I want to highlight before we even get into this, is that Jesus healed them. And the healing that we usually think of here is healing withered hands, the lame, leprosy. But I know for a lot of people, if they went to Christ and said, I need to be healed, and he says, what would you like me to heal you of? It's, I have a broken heart. I have pain. I have broken relationships. And so as we look at Jesus again, just keep in mind, He's in the business of healing. And it may take some time. He may want to work things in our lives as He does things. But He's the first person we need to turn to as we start pondering what we need to do for healing. The Pharisees come along. says some Pharisees came to Him to test Him. And I'd like to change around your view of Pharisee a little bit. Our notion of Pharisee today, sort of the popular one, is anybody who believes in a single rule regarding right and wrong is a Pharisee. And all you need is one, and they're pretty much calling you a Pharisee. And there's a general rule that in any theological dispute, when people are arguing and it finally totally breaks down, they point each, their fingers at each other and say, you're a Pharisee. Um, but it says the Pharisees came to test him. And since my background, my degrees are called engineering science, I like to test things. I like to poke them. I like to kick them. I think a boom. This is cool. I might try to figure out how to get a bigger boom out of it. Because, well, I just like to test things. But then sometimes I come along and I want to test people. Like I do objects. And I say something and I get a reaction out of them. Hmm. Maybe I can say it a little differently, I'll get a bigger reaction. So, this is not a good thing to do, but any of you ever done that before? <laughs> okay. The Pharisees are testing Jesus. This is also out, it says, on the other side of the Jordan. That's the opposite side from Jerusalem. And that means they're actually following him around trying to look at him and observe him and being very scientific about all this. So, 
I just want you to ponder the fact that this Pharisee instinct may go much beyond um, it, it may be something that we're all prone to at some level or another and we shouldn't think of the Pharisees are the others <laughs> and another little thing I saw as I was going about preparing for this um, something that went semi-viral on the theology blogs was uh, a case of church discipline that was done at Mark Driscoll's church or allegedly done and I don't know anything about it all I know is that this case got picked up by some of the theologians and they were pretty much throwing one rhetorical stone after another at Mark Driscoll and his church for this particular case how dare you be judgmental? And anyway, it's amazing how people can be judgmental and condemning judgmentalism and it'll go right over their head. So I just want to highlight the fact that these Pharisees are here, but it's so easy for us to step into their mold. <laughs> and if you think you're never a Pharisee, then probably... Okay. Well, I'll leave it at that. The Pharisees are out here testing Jesus. So they say, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And this bit, I'll give you a little background before we go too far. The, this was a, apparently a topic at this era. This is a collection of writings called the Mishnah, which I believe is 20 volumes that are all in Hebrew. They're not part of the Bible, but what they are intended to be is a collection of rabbi writings about how to interpret certain laws, mainly the laws in the scripture. And so they were very focused on, well, in this particular instance, this section on divorce. The house of Shammai there means basically the followers of a school that was started by somebody named Shammai. And another one, the house of Hillel, is a different rabbi who founded it. Both of these ones did their work in the generation or so before Jesus was born. The Mishnah itself grew over five centuries. And so it says house of Shammai, it means the school that followed this rabbi Shammai. And the house of Hillel is the school that followed. So we don't fully know that this was the nature of the discussion that occurred in the time that Jesus was walking the hills of Judah. But it's likely it could have been. Anyway, this developed over a few centuries and it's a collection and for those who are really fanatical about the biblical scholarship, they'll want to read it and I haven't read it so all I have done is excerpt it and I usually like to note if I use a work that I've only excerpted and not read because that means that there's a chance that I'm getting it out of context. Says the house of Shammai says, a man must not divorce his wife unless he has found her unfaithful. As was said, quoting from De Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1, because he has found some uncleanness in her. The house of Hillel says, he may divorce her if she only spoiled a dish for him. Because it was said, uncleanness in anything. Rabbi Akiba says he may divorce her if he found another that is more beautiful than his wife because it was said if it comes to pass that she find no favor in his eyes. And this is the level that the rabbis are, are looking at this discussion. There's a bit more that we have. The, the rabbi Philo who lived in Alexandria doesn't say too much more about this but he does note that sin would not have come into the world if God hadn't created woman is what he said in his writing anyway just give you a, put you a little bit into the mindset of these rabbis Josephus tells us about the Qumran community the community of the Dead Sea Scrolls and they apparently accepted marriage but they segregated the men and the women and forced them to live all the men to live together and all the women to live together and the married couples could only come together when it was time to produce children for that specific purpose 
So that was some of the rules that were going around at this time. And from this mindset, the Pharisees are coming in to grill Jesus. The thing I haven't included here is a lot of the other discussion. The main thing they were worked up on was, okay, so if we're going to divorce this lady, how do we formally issue the divorce? Do we, how do we make the certificate? And do we need a witness? Does it need to be signed? How should it be delivered? And on and on and on. This is uh, the level that they were treating the, the discussion at. So, so the Pharisees, it says, are there to test him. And it says, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus responds in verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's from the creation story from Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning. It's before the law is given. And Jesus is using this. And he's using it in a certain sense that I think should be noted. He's not using it in any kind of allegorical sense. It's that God united Adam and Eve. It was a planned marriage. And that's the way things started. And that's the way God intended it to be. Is what Jesus explained. Of course, Jesus is the Word of God. In some sense, this is His Word. This is His doing that He did at the beginning of time. And so He's explaining to them, as the author of the Bible, what the, the Bible means. The best teacher you possibly can get. And what He does here in saying that God created man, God put them together, is He takes the whole discussion to a whole new level. Everybody's focused on the mechanics of this and he completely, they completely lost the original sense of what God was intending to do with the marriage. And that's what Jesus is highlighting to them. But they, of course, are not ready to give up here. So they come back. Verse 7. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. And there's where the trick comes in. This is a bit of a trick question because they said command and Moses didn't command them to send the wife away. So Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Not command, permitted, changing it. Because your hearts were hard, and this statement of Jesus is something that, I guess, because I've seen some couples in the terminal stages of divorce, I have to say is, it's just so true that you understand. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. And at the end, it just seems they... Well, I should say that... Uh, Many times a divorce starts like a hurricane. Hurricane starts as a little tropical depression over Africa, a little disturbance. And it moves west over the Atlantic. And what was a little disturbance gradually builds and builds and builds and builds over time until it becomes a category four or five hurricane. And so the case of the divorce usually is something that's just built over time. People snapping away at each other with their tongue or something that built over time. And so I will leave that as one of my key bits of advice here is just watch your tongue. <laughs> Our tongues are deadly weapons full of poison. If you find yourself teasing your spouse, it's always okay to apologize. But to encourage, to build one another up is a key part of what we're we should be doing as Christians, as Christian couples. But it tends to just build over time. And it reaches a point where the couple, each one of them, is just convinced the other can never change. It's hopeless. They're hardened. And that's probably the best thing that I could say, the best word I could use. Their hearts are hardened. And both of them have issues 
they can't let go. Sometimes it's only one. Often, more often, it's both. But anyway, what he, the figure of speech that Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. Of course, the marriage wasn't, but I don't think that was the intention. I mean, Jesus is using this in multiple senses here, probably. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Um, I guess I will leave that at that point. The disciples, I love the disciples, they always have the greatest reactions. The disciples said to them, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And I'm wondering what they're thinking. There's a missing step in here that I can fill in. And one of the ways I can fill it in is by saying, you mean I can't divorce her if she burns my hamburger? Why well, then would I want to get married? And that's one possible way. <laughs> There's another way to fill it in is that they've seen enough of the, the risk of a marriage going bad and they just don't want to think, think that a person should take that risk if they can't divorce. But as I went through some of the, the earlier stages and the imagery of Christ and the church and this marriage imagery, again, think of the disciples' reaction here. It might go wrong and then we're stuck. And here it is with Christ and the church. Not only might it have gone wrong with God's foreknowledge, it almost certainly was going to go wrong, and he knew it was going to go wrong. And yet Christ entered into this relationship with the church, knowing full well what would happen, knowing our sin nature, knowing our rebelliousness, and yet, in spite of that, persisting to the end, caring for us, keeping to call us back, to call us back to reconcile the relationship. So again, the, something that I hope these images just come back to you when you have those situations in your marriages. The images that the Bible leaves for us. And I won't leave you with lots of rules, but just try to call you to attention just the fact of Christ's faithfulness. So the disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus replies, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they have been that, were born that way. Others have been made eunuchs, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And... So this statement that Jesus has is that for some people there is a case that there will be no marriage. But he doesn't specifically say it's wrong, that it's bad. And in fact, if you look in the, just the, the viewpoint that God put the marriage together, are you going to say that it's wrong? It's sort of a bad mindset from the beginning to say, well, I mean, at that point you're saying, I made a mistake when I chose my wife, or I made a mistake when I chose my husband. And I hope none of you ever get to that point. I really do hope you cherish your husband or wife. I have to pick on the feminists, because I know their reaction to the things that I showed about the rabbis is that... Uh, this is so, what do you call it, chauvinistic and bigoted. It's all male dominance slavery. So this is a little bit, and I put a grain of salt there just because I haven't tracked the source to the beginning. So that's what that 
image means. But it says, moreover, in some of the states where no-fault divorce was introduced, over 70% of the divorce filings were by women. Among college-educated couples, the percentage of divorces initiated by wives is a whopping 90%. And I'll say every single case of a divorce filing I know of was done by a woman. And I just want to throw that out for those who might find that uh, this male-dominated system is not to their liking. We have a female-dominated system and we have skyrocketing divorce. And whether that's good or bad, I will let you ponder. <laughs> One thing I want to emphasize again is that what God puts together, if He puts a marriage together, and it's a right marriage. It can be done by our own choice between the husband and wife or sometimes it's a planned one. But we generally assume based on what Jesus has said that it's what God intended as part of his plan. But then again we have to say that with regard to the marriage of Hosea too. But I wanted to highlight a few cases where people stirred up some commotion on this issue. John the Baptist being the most famous one, which is also in Matthew and which you've read if you've been part following the scripture. John the Baptist pointed out that Herod's marriage to Herodias was against God's plan. It was not a marriage put together by God because Herodias had been married to Herod's brother, Philip. And so he preached against that and Herodias was furious. And after a bunch of conniving and other things, she managed to get the head of John the Baptist chopped off and put on a platter. And that's what the image on the left is. Because not all marriages are put together by God. There are rules. There are rules that are there. And those rules are, are for a purpose. And so I highlight that just because today there's a lot of screaming and yelling if anybody says we can't change the rules they, they don't like it there's nothing new in all that <laughs> it's been going on for a while the other one I highlighted is someone that you probably never heard of I wish I could pronounce that Girolamo Savonarola he was the bishop in Florence, Italy. At the end of the Renaissance time, there was a Pope, Alexander VI. Now, as you know, all popes are supposed to be, well, the Catholic priests are supposed to be celibate, according to their rules. And Alexander VI, I believe, had his grandchildren to celebrate their marriages in St. Paul's Cathedral in Rome and he was known for giving various church posts to all his relatives and descendants and others and just totally corrupt. At that time, the records say that about 10% of the population of the city of Rome was employed in prostitution. Just to give you a little bit of a shock. Crime everywhere. And as Martin Luther wrote, the the one thing that you, when a new bishop showed up in your village, you wanted him to show up, even though he's supposed to be celibate, with a concubine. The reason for the concubine is so he would leave your daughters alone. Things had gone completely crazy in the church. And you wonder how it gets, got to that point. And what had started many, many centuries earlier was just a misinterpretation of this passage about what the disciples said. If this situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. But a lot of the teachers said all marriage was wrong. And they went so far as to say that, well, the Virgin Mary had always been a virgin. She gave birth to Christ. But it would have been wrong for her to have produced more children. And they argued that she remained sinless. Therefore, Jesus did not have any real brothers and sisters. Which is contrary to Scripture. 
But that's to the extent that they, they went to to argue this point. And they continued arguing and arguing. And basically condemning all marriage. Encouraging everyone to go off to a convent or a, mo a monastery. And in the process, initially, the enthusiasm meant that the convents and the monasteries were really houses where people loved the Lord and worshipped Him. But over time, it degenerated. And so it became that a convent was a byword for a brothel at a time. And uh, the monks were absolutely despised. Everything just came unglued. So a whole huge part of the Reformation that occurred, the, well, I should say that this bishop, first Savonarola, in his cathedral, was preaching against all this corruption, promiscuity, and everything going on. And he did that from his cathedral in Florence. During that time, he filled it. He packed it. They said... Uh, the prostitutes loved hearing him preach. They would take off their, the insignia of their profession and head on in there and listen to him preach. He filled it. At the end of that, the Pope Alexander VI, rather than cleaning up anything, he excommunicated Savonarola, and a mob went and executed him. And that was the end of that. It's tough to preach against some of the things the world wants to do. And it's really sad when some Christian leaders, or ones who profess to be Christian leaders, will take the lead on corrupting society. But that's the way it was then. The Protestant Reformation was largely about cleaning all that up. And I give that to you, not so much to discourage you, but to realize that in our current age, there's cycles that we go through. And this one can pass too. see what I got next there. This was uh, St. Augustine's photograph, as you can see. And his mother. Um, his mother, St. Monica, is what they're called. Monica is, of course, the name of the city south of here. Santa Monica, down in the L.A. area, is named after her. She's a wonderful lady, and we learn about her from Augustine's confessions. She was a Christian lady who was given in marriage to a pagan, a dissolute pagan husband. And he had raised Augustine to be the same way, promiscuous, enjoying life. And Augustine fell in his footsteps, his father's footsteps for a while. But his mother prayed for him and sought his salvation. And later in life, Augustine became a Christian and changed himself completely. So there's some story about him. I know I've picked on mostly the nagging wives. This story, if I can find it here, Augustine's Confessions is the book here, and he writes about his mother. So, so she was brought up in modesty and sobriety. She was made by your obedient to her parents rather than by them to you. When she reached marriageable age, she was given to a man and served him as her lord. This is a pagan society, completely different. She knew that an angry husband should not be opposed, not merely by anything she did, but even by a word. Once she saw that he had become calm and quiet and the occasion was opportune, she would explain the reason for her action in case perhaps he had reacted without sufficient consideration. Indeed, many wives married to gentler husbands bore the marks of blows and suffered disfigurement on their faces. In conversations together, they used to complain about their husband's behavior. Monica, speaking as if in jest, but offering serious advice, used to blame their tongues. She would say that since the day when they heard the so-called matrimonial contract read out to them, they should reckon them to be legally binding documents by which they had become servants. She thought they should remember their condition and not proudly withstand their masters. The wives were astounded, knowing that what a violent husband she had to put up with. It was unheard of, nor was there ever a mark to show that Patrick had beaten his wife or that a domestic quarrel had caused dissension between them. As it continues on, and his praises for his mom scattered throughout. Just a wonderful, wonderful lady. 
extremely patient. And I give that to you just because as I see in a lot of Christian churches, there's a lot of divorced women there. And it ends up being people with, or people, I should say, women living with non-Christian husbands. Just tremendously patient, wonderful women that I like to praise. So it finishes up this section on divorce and then what happens immediately after that. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. And I, just in pondering this little passage, if I tack it on to the end of this topic of divorce, for anybody who bothers to track these things, you know that the children with the most problems are the children with divorced parents. When I was teaching a junior high Sunday school before, I had 20 kids sometimes. A few of them would be disruptive and I would ask about the particular kid and almost always it was the case that the disruptive one had a divorced parent. You can see it in the children. It affects them. And so as you consider this thing of people bringing the children to Jesus and I think of the despair that people can have in particular if they look at those statistics just to think that again we have to entrust our children to Jesus that that's the only hope they have it's the only hope for us and it's the only hope for them I'll finish this up with one last little reading and I'll let us do it all together. It's from Revelation chapter 21 on page 852. Just four verses. Let's read it all together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Let's, uh, one more time. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your Savior, for our blessed Savior. And I just pray that we will take your word to heart as we go about everything we do. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.